You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Misha Chellum, who is the founder of Effective Government California. He believes government is a vitally important institution and it's our responsibility as citizens to help improve it. A little different than many of our episodes, Misha has previously been a startup founder, but we concentrate more on his political work than on his startup background, although he does draw connections between the two. He explains more in the episode, but in brief, Effective Government California is an organization where I'm a member that is made up of a donor network of 160 families and also starts and funds new advocacy organizations, like a newly formed wildfire organization. They've created a publication called Modern Power, which you can read on Substack. And one of the co-founders also is a co-founder of California NIMBY. Misha will make the case that startup skills are partially transferable into the political and policy domain and encourages you to consider it when it's the right time. And perhaps some issues will be better served, better impacted through advocacy, politics, and policy than through startups if you're seeking to do good. So please stay tuned. Nisha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ooh, Miles, thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. Why should someone who's involved with startups care about politics? That is a great question. Why should they care about politics? Well, the first thing is that in addition to being a founder or a startup employee, they're also a citizen. They live in some jurisdiction. They live in a city. They live in a state. They live in the U.S. And many of the things that affect their lives, you know, and increasingly so, will be influenced by politics, public policy. I think that that has that's only grown. I'll, I'll talk about California because that's where I'm based. You know, in California, if there's a wildfire, well, there, there's now a wildfire season. There used to be when I grew up. You know, that's going to affect you. I mean, startups can help around the edges, but public policy is going to play a huge role there. You know, if you want to buy a house or you want your kids to live near you when you grow up, housing policy is going to affect you. You know, if you're spending time in downtown San Francisco, homelessness is going to affect you. These are all things where I think startups could contribute, but it's going to be startups within the frame of public policy. So that's at least one reason. I have many other reasons, but I'll start there. So you've convinced someone to care, but I might be used to startup life that moves quickly, has clear goals, and a cohesive team. All these things sometimes seem absent in politics. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that that's true. And I think it's a really important point for how people choose to spend their time. So like you said, I think you want to work with smart people, be values aligned, you know, get to do great work. I think that's probably like a medium to long-term thing that we need to focus on in our reform efforts is how do you make government a place, not just for smart people to go because tons of smart people do go into government, but for them to stay and to be able to do great work in government. And for a whole bunch of reasons that maybe we can get into, like it's become it's become a place where it's really hard to do good work because we've put so many constraints around government workers. So, you know, as a starting point, I would say give some money to fixing government. Money is actually much, I mean, 
it's cliche that money is interest uh, is uh, important in politics. I think I've come to I believe that. Then I stopped believing that, and now I've I've, I've rebelieved that. So as a start, you can just give some money to fixing politics, and eventually you can spend your time on it too. That's a fascinating journey. Can you walk us through that? How you changed your mind on money and politics? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a cliche thing, like, oh my gosh, there's so much money in politics. And so that's, you know, people get excited about campaign finance reform or democracy vouchers or, you know, a set of other ideas to get money out of politics. And then, you know, you take a race or you look in the national headlines about, you know, Janie Harrison's race or Amy McGrath's race. These are two people who ran for Senate in 2020. And it's like, a hundred million dollars went into these campaigns and they lost by a bunch of money. And so you say, actually, maybe money is not that important in politics after all. And I think that at the national level and certainly in certain high profile races, there go- so much money goes into the race that it passes the point of marginal benefit. And like you could maybe make an argument that there's some sort of expected value calculation that like, yeah, if you can flip the Senate, then that's really valuable, even if the odds are low. But I think that the odds in that case were really low. If you come to local politics or state politics, the sums of money are significantly smaller. And actually, each marginal dollar is hugely contributory. That could be to a candidate, or it could also be for an advocacy organization. And I'll give you just uh, an example of the sort of leverage that uh, dollars into politics or advocacy advocacy can give. There's this organization that my co-founder of this project, this guy, Zach Rosen, started a few years ago called California EMB. And they're a statewide housing advocacy org in California. And their yearly budget has been somewhere between, you know, I think it was like a few hundred thousand dollars the first year and maybe a million to two million dollars for the last couple of years. And on that budget, they've helped rewrite and pass 12 bills including, you know, bills to allow ADUs to be built in people's backyards, which are, you know, additional use units of housing, and for help push SB9, which was this bill that they passed in California last year that allows a duplex or a fourplex to be built on any single family home uh, lot. And that's like rewriting the rules of a trillion dollar industry and is going to create hundreds of thousands of new units of housing, which like on a regular human level is going to make a really big difference in a ton of people's lives. And that was done for, you know, less than the amount of money that goes into like a single series A round. So you're saying concentrate your money, state and local. I think federally, there can be leverage around the edges. Like, you know, there's a new organization called Institute for Progress, or there's an organization called an advocacy org called Niskanen Center. And those are organizations with budgets of a couple million dollars, a few million dollars a year who have, you know, outsized impact on at least to this point, the conversation around certain key issues like immigration or, you know, how we and I'm sorry to get so wonky. I, I I know that you warned me that this is mainly a startup audience who might not pay that much attention to politics and public policy. But, you know, when we, we talk about things in a very conceptual way, like the green energy transition, and we talk about how, yeah, let's electrify everything and we're going to drop the cost of energy. We're going to you know, get ahead of climate change, whatever. There's just some really boring stuff or, or really practical stuff that goes along with that. Like we have to build, we have to build transmission lines and they have to go across state boundaries. And there's a bunch of weird archaic rules around how you do that. And so, you know, Niskanen, as an example, is working on reforming those rules so that you can build these 
transmission lines so that you can put a bunch of solar in the deserts of Arizona or New Mexico and then transport those to places that get a little bit less sun. Yeah, so so even at the federal level, I think you can make an impact with limited dollars, but certainly even more so at the state and local level. And so what are you up to with Effective Government California? Yeah, so I'll give you our, I don't know, 30 second or, or minute long pitch. So we basically think Trump and Trumpism are downstream of institutions that don't deliver for people. And my personal journey into this is I was in startups for a decade. And after 2016, like 2016 was such a weird election year. And it's not just because of Trump. I mean, Bernie had the most energy, he didn't win, but he had the most energy on the Democratic side. These are two weird candidates. They're pretty old. They're very bomb throwy. The fact that they had so much energy behind them meant that a lot of people, you know, various parts of the political spectrum, a lot of people just felt like the system wasn't working for them. And at the national level, this is my own, you know, my own political, my own politics here. Like I'm sort of left, center left, like a Democrat roughly. And and so at the national level, I can say, man, the Republican Party's off the rails. A bunch of people don't believe, you know, that Biden won the election, like, like, the party is just totally in the wilderness. Oh, I could mentally imagine if only, you know, the, the the Republican Party lost convincingly, then Democrats would fix everything. But then I look in California and it's like there's no Republicans in, with any power here. And yet, you know, we have the highest supplemental poverty rate in the country. That's because our house is so expensive. We have a quarter of the country's homeless population. We're not actually making that much progress on on the clean energy transition. We have this massive wildfire problem. You know, schools are pretty bad. Like, there's all this public policy, all these suboptimal outcomes. It's not it's not a partisan issue. It's something more fundamental in the way our government is working these days. So we're working to fix that. I can go into more details, but but that's that's what we're working on. Yeah. So how do you do it? Yeah. So we think that a lot of the problems in our politics come from like what I'd call narrow interest capture. And that's basically the idea that a small group of people who benefit from something will band together and be more motivated to, to engage in government than a, a looser group of people. And so this is, there's a book by Steve Tellison Brinkland's, he called The Captured Economy. And it basically talks about how across many different issue areas, across party lines, there's a set of incumbent players who are who have captured that that part of the economy. And so there's a recent idea that a lot of people are talking about that we're big backers of um, called supply side progressivism or abundance or abundance progressivism, which is basically how do you unlock the, the supply constraints such that you can have you know more abundance of whatever that thing is. I'll give examples in a second. And lower the cost of living for folks, have people feel like their institutions are helping them make progress in their lives again. So housing is an obvious one. It's like we've artificially limited supply by having a bunch of zoning rules that say, no, you can't build you know, apartment buildings, or you can't build multifamily housing, or you can't build single residency occupancy rooms, which we used to have all these different housing types before we constrained supply. And so because of that, housing becomes really, really expensive. And there's all these negative downstream effects of that. You know, the same thing is for for in healthcare. It's like we don't we should just say, hey, if you're a foreign doctor and you can pass a competency based test here, you can practice medicine here. And by the way, probably the same for a nurse practitioner. A nurse can do certain things that they're competent and able to do. Instead, we have this kind of 
cartel system where we limit the number of spots available in medical school and then limit the number of doctors who can, you know, who can work here. That keeps their incomes high, but it makes healthcare costs higher for everyone else. That same thing happens all over the economy. And so we're trying to build a faction within the Democratic Party in California to counteract that, like the you know politicians who run explicitly about increasing the supply of critical goods. And so you're building this faction that means it's an advocacy organization or more of a donor organization? So it's a mix of things. Um, and, and let me let me heed your pre pre-podcast reminder to to analogize to the startup world because so I came from startups, you know, I started two companies, one was not successful at all, one was moderately successful. All of the folks I work with on the project, or almost all of them are startup founders, many of them founders of billion dollar companies, so very successful startup operators. And we've basically approached this just like we're building a new company or new products in a market. So we're like, you know, we do customer development with legislators to try and understand what is it that holds you back from doing the type of policy work that would broadly benefit Californians. It would solve the problems that we all know we have. And we try and understand like, what are those blockers? And then how could we build, you know, I'm doing air, air quotes here. Like how could we build products that would help you? You know, one of those things is, is money. I think going back to my roller coaster relationship to the role of money in politics, I think money is, it's not as transactional as people think it is. So it's not like, you know, actually at the edge of corruption. I mean, there's the rare politician for whom it is, but it's really that there's a set of financial backers that a politician ends up having. And then when you discuss a new problem area, they sort of, have a soft veto over a lot of policy ideas that could help solve the problem. And so what you want to do is you want to free up these politicians from being dependent on these narrow interests and be able to be a little bit broader in how they conceptualize solving a problem. Let me try and give a concrete example. Well, I'll give a concrete example that would drive startup people crazy. So, you know, we haven't really innovated in housing production techniques for like 100 years. Most housing, especially single family housing is still built by, and even multifamily, honestly, is, is still built like using people who, who build stuff on site. And we sort of know from the industrial revolution that, that stuff built in factories is, is cheaper and, and sort of more scalable. And so there's this startup called Factory OS by this guy who was a former contractor that got, they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they basically build, you know, apartment units in a factory and then sort of ship them and assemble them on site. They're actually a unionized shop. They're unionized by the carpenters, which is which is one of the labor unions. And they built a project in San Francisco, like an affordable housing project. And the cost per unit was like half or a third of the typical cost. And the speed was twice the speed. So you're like, this is amazing. We've we found it. You know, like let's scale this. The the Building Trades Union, which is another union in San Francisco, who's a very powerful union, has actually blocked the use of more modular housing in California or in, in San Francisco because a bunch of their unionized guys are getting cut out of the, the, the sort of business. And they're just a very powerful interest in San Francisco. And so they're able in a quiet, you know, session that no one's really paying attention to 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 block modular housing and no one really like that, 
the problem is on us. Like we citizens just don't pay attention to this stuff. So anyway, so if the folks who are running for the board of supervisors had a stream of support from a citizen group like ours, instead of, you know, this, this narrower group of building trades folks, they'd be freer to make decisions that, that made more sense for folks. Long-winded way of saying, yes, one of the things we do is we bundle money and support politicians with it, such that they're less dependent on other people's money. And our money, I'm not saying like we don't have blind spots, but we're not financially interested. We're not a financially interested party in a way that many other of the sort of narrow interest contributors to campaigns are. So that's one product. There's others. And how do you avoid the perception that this is Silicon Valley folks coming to the rescue, think they can fix something else? I'm sure that we will have some of that. I'm sure there is some of that already. And that's, it is what it is. I mean, we are Silicon Valley folks who, who are pretty non-representative in terms of, you know, wealth, who, who are engaging in the public policy arena. I mean, part of it is just the way that we've approached it. Like, so we have a donor network. There's 160 families in the group and the values screen we have. And you, you are a member, so you know this, but, but uh, I'm, I'm sharing this for the rest of our listeners. Um, you know, the value screen is sort of humility and curiosity. And that's because, yeah, I mean, public policy is more complicated than, than building a company, you know, with a company, everyone knows what the goal is, you know, for better or worse. I think you might've had Eric Reese on this, like for better or worse, it's, it's shareholder maximizing shareholder profit. Um, you know, everyone's got equity to align them to the goal. You know, there's not a multiplicity of stakeholders. It's, it's very clear in public policy. There's many stakeholders. There's lots of laws. There's lots of different definitions of what good or progress is, et cetera. So I think we have to be humble about entering into this arena where many people have been working, applying the craft for a long time, and we're just newbies. And then I also think curiosity, that's just like if you, you know, if you went and started a company in the education domain and you'd previously been in, you know, I don't know, health tech or something, like you'd spend a bunch of time talking to teachers, talking to students, talking to principles talking, you know, whatever your product is aimed at. So we spent a lot, uh, we spent like a year talking to legislators, advocacy organizations, bureaucrats, journalists, think tank folks, et cetera, to try to have a more nuanced picture of the, of the environment. Then the other thing I'd say is that we, we sort of think about it almost like we're a VC fund. I mean, maybe that's like the closest analogy I could draw. And in the same way that a VC wants to be founder focused, like ultimately the legislator or the CEO of the advocacy org is the person that's going to do the work. Like they're the person who's there every day fighting these fights. We just want to be wind at their back and we want to help them. And in the same way that a VC firm might say, oh, shoot, it looks like a lot of our, you know, startups, you know, our seed startups are struggling with comms. So we're going to have a PR, you know, person on staff or we're going to have a talent partner so that they can help, you know, the the companies think about their hiring plan. We, in the same way, want to staff sort of capacity for these legislators. Money is the thing that legislators need. They also need policy ideas. And so we, you know, another product is that we support advocacy organizations that are pushing for like abundance or supply side policy. Yeah. So anyways, that's all just to say, we try and approach it in a humble, collaborative way. And I'm sure some people will end up still having a negative impression, but yeah, that's fine. And you mentioned you have other products. So what are those? So I would say, so we bundle money for folks and we support advocacy organizations. I would say those are the two ones that are the most built out to date. 
So like we have delivered a bunch of bundled money to elected officials. We have supported a number of advocacy orgs working under the umbrella of supply side progressive, like working towards abundant or supply side progressive goals. You know, pretty soon we'll start helping folks run campaigns, you know, help build out a policy platform, help do polling, help do, you know, messaging comms. Yeah, basically create a an infrastructure to help candidates. And, and part of the motivation there, honestly, going back to your point about people wanting to work in good environments, it sucks being a candidate for office right now. Like it's a deeply unpleasant experience. We had one member of our group run for office and another person who was close to our group run. And it's like super lonely. You know, you spend all day begging for money. You have to learn everything on the fly. It's very much like starting a company in the absence of a YC or in the absence of even like a first round capital. Like everything is pre, many things in politics are sort of pre, you know, early 2000s. It's like late 90s or something. I mean, I, I wasn't around building startups then, but how I've heard, like everything's kind of shrouded in mystery. You have to like talk to the guy who knows the person, you know, to get the information. A lot of stuff is being done from scratch. There are certainly some organizations that are starting to build this infrastructure for candidates. They tend to be, the ones I know of at least, tend to be more, you know, their theory is a little bit different than ours. So their theory is we need more women in politics or we need more, you know, folks with different backgrounds, working class folks, multiracial. That's like their sort of, their theory is if we had more of those people in office, then we would get better public policy outcomes. I'm not hostile to that theory, but our theory is more we need candidates who believe in the same, like who have the same analysis of the problem as we have. And so we would want to make it easier for folks like that who also have the some of the built in some good properties or traits to be successful candidates, which number one, like far and away is name ID. So I was told by a friend who runs a who runs a national political org that like the best candidate for office in a generic way is like a local television anchor because they have really high name ID. So but basically we want to recruit great candidates who fit the district, who fit the, have those natural inbuilt benefit, you know, uh, advantages, and then help them run on an abundance, you know, or supply side progressive agenda. And is that agenda laid out in the Modern Power publication? Yeah. So we started this publication, Modern Power. I'd say we're still getting to it. You know, I think we understand what abundance means, you know, broad way, you know, this getting rid of supply constraints to bring down the costs of critical goods that are where most people spend their money. You know, in California, the two that we'll start with, and we have a lot of clarity on or you know, reasonable clarity on is housing and, and clean energy. I don't know yet what it'll look like for other categories. And, and I'll also say, like, to further complicate things, I mean, we think part of it is about this notion of abundance. And then part of it, and these are interrelated, is just this notion of like effective government and that you know, state capacity, effective government. This is things like we have to pay our legislative staffs well enough so that they can like build careers and expertise in the thing they're doing, as opposed to like pay them poverty wages. And then, you know, then they turn around after two years in the building and go work for a lobbyist, make five times as much money. But now they're advocating for a narrow interest instead of like all of our collective public interests. If you look at many of the countries around the world that people think of as 
well run, often they pay their civil servants and their their government employees really well because you know those those folks are ultimately like very important to carrying out all these things that we say we want to do. So anyway, so so there'll be stuff around housing costs, clean energy costs, stuff around state capacity, like the more you know increasing the effectiveness of the way that we deliver government services. And yeah, but the rest of the rest of the specifics of the platform, TBD, hopefully we'll we'll have more to say on that in you know three to six months. And part of the goal is to start new advocacy organizations, right? That's right. Yeah. So we started, you know, it's it's within a given domain. Let's look at the landscape and understand whether there is a existing org that we can just partner with because there's great people there and great they already have a cadence of performance and out driving outcomes or whether there needs to be something new um, we didn't want to fall into the startup person trap of like let's just do new things from scratch all the time so in housing like i said california EMB, i mean that was actually co-founded by my co-founder in in mega fires which you know again didn't really exist until 5 years ago there wasn't really a organization in the landscape that was you know that woke up every day and said like how do we help government leaders drive outcomes to reduce mega fire risk that organization didn't really exist so we actually incubated it and recruited this amazing ceo to run it and now that organization is off the ground and and that's pretty rare in the political world like a lot of orgs are very kind of incumbent legacy institution, like they've been around for many decades. That's great. You know, part of that is is good. You know, the Nature Conservancy or Environmental Defense Fund or Sierra Club, like they do good work, but they've also accreted a lot of, just like government itself, they've accreted a lot of different stakeholders and they don't necessarily, you know, have an updated views with the times. So, for example, many of those environmental orgs are against advanced nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is clean and stable and safe and can be cheap. We should certainly at least be investing in, you know, we should be updating our regulatory guidelines such that we can get new plants up and running. And we should be exploring that and geothermal and offshore wind and all these things. A lot of the incumbent organizations just have a more have an older view on the on the climate problem. They think about it more as like conservation and less less about the need to build our way out of climate change. And so, yeah, so sometimes we need to start new organizations. Sometimes we support existing ones. So who do you find is opposed to this agenda? I mean, it's it's always the narrow interest that benefits the incumbent that benefits from the status quo. So, you know, many people, right, nobody is opposed to abundance and for scarcity in the abstract. So everyone's like, yeah, more of stuff. That sounds good. Then you get into the particulars and you find that, you know, for abundant housing, not only, you know, sometimes housing is pitched as like, oh, it's the NIMBY homeowner that is, you know, in their neighborhood, not wanting their neighborhood to change, you know, defending their you know, economic value. First of all, like, I actually think we make things overly economic sometimes. Like, I think it's legitimately just like the human brain is wired to not like change, you know, to like have status quo bias. So I think it's more just about things are pretty okay. Why take a risk and do something different when my life's pretty okay? I just want to like stand athwart history and say stop. So that's a natural, I think, human instinct. 
so people concentrate on like the NIMBY homeowner um, because they can picture that person. Oh yeah. It's kind of like my mom or my aunt or that neighbor down the street or, or me, you know, whatever, like it, it's picturable. The reason that person has a voice in the process to begin with and has all these veto points that they can jam up the process is because of, you know, rules that we put in place, you know, years, decades ago in California. One of those is called CEQA. California Environmental Quality Act. The people who defend that from being modernized are groups like the building trades who, you know, again, theoretically, you would think by the name would want more building, but they actually want to constrain supplies and, and control supplies such that their workers get to work on all the projects at higher wages. And so as a result, they block a bunch of reform that would make it easier to build housing. So, you know, they wouldn't say we're against abundance and for scarcity, but then they also have a list of you know 20 conditions that most outside observers would say are not reasonable before they're willing to compromise on, on sort of how we make laws to make housing more available. So anyway, so across what, you know, the CMA or AMA, uh, that's the California Medical Association or American Medical Association, they'd have all types of stuff that they would say that would sound reasonable-ish about, oh, what they really care about is patient and care quality and all that stuff in barring foreign doctors from practicing here or in barring nurse practitioners from practicing here. And in the end, it would really be more about sort of like protecting the status quo, protecting the way things are done today. What have been the biggest challenges as you're building this political startup? I mean, I think there's been a few. I think that there's a deep nihilism or certainly cynicism or skepticism towards the idea that anything in government can change. And I think that's because we've lived in a period where relatively little has changed for the better. And, you know, there have been plenty of big movements in history. We take a decent amount of inspiration from the progressive movement of the early 20th century, where, yeah, it's like a lot of people just got involved. Like it's ultimately, you know, we are the government. Like it's a, we live in a liberal democracy. Like you have voice and we can make things happen. It takes collective action. I think people have not been a party to that, like, you know, in many of the institutions that used to draw people together and have them engage in something like small D democratic activity, whether those were like Elks clubs, Rotary clubs, or, you know, military service, I mean, military service isn't small D democratic. So maybe that's not a great example. But I think we've just we've atrophied our muscles of civic engagement. And so people as a result have like just a lot of skepticism, just like, oh, government, that's just, that's, that's always broken. Like that, that's, that's not a kind of what you said at the start, like, that's just not a place where it makes sense to spend my time and energy. So I think overcoming that skepticism and cynicism is one thing. I mean, it, it's amazing, actually, how much like learned helplessness there is as for us as citizens. I was talking to a friend who's a wealthy you know, successful entrepreneur in San Francisco, and they were sort of decrying the state of X or Y thing in San Francisco. And it was so funny to listen to them. You know, they were basically like, well, hopefully it either gets, basically it was like either hopefully it gets fixed, presumably by somebody else, or, you know, maybe we'll move. Like you would never say that about a problem in your company. Like even if it's somebody else's job titularly to, to take care of it, like there's some issue with the product. It's like, yeah, your chief product officer should do it, but you're the CEO ultimately. So it's like, do you want to fix it or not? So it's funny, we don't, we, yeah, I think we've just like a little bit lost that muscle as citizens. I think folks, I'm very optimistic given what I've learned so far that, that we can rebuild that sense of agency and 
but yeah, but that, that, that's definitely obstacle we've encountered. You're saying that startup people are all action oriented and problem solving oriented in their business life. And then when it comes to civics, throw up their hands and say, what can I do? Totally. Totally. Just like little lost puppy dogs. Like what can I, yeah, like th this is so impossible. And it's funny because the few, you know, the, the, the handful of folks, Zach is a great example. There's a guy named Michael Schneider down in LA. There's a woman named Erica Reinhardt up here, like folks who have sort of managed to just transfer their startup ethos and thinking and approach into politics have been incredibly successful and driven really impressive outcomes in short periods of time with limited budgets. Because, you know, I mean, the, the, the startup skill set is a very generalizable one. You know, it's basically like, how do I understand the problem, you know, in its, in, in, in its sort of complexity how do I build a team to help tackle the problem? How do I tell a story to raise money to fund that team? How do I manage a team to metrics? I mean, those are all general skills. It's not to say that there isn't some specific domain knowledge in politics, just like there's domain knowledge in moving from health tech to, to ed tech, but the core skill set is very similar. And so, yeah, activating folks and getting folks into that mindset they can they can do a lot in a short period of time. Any advice for someone who wants to make that transition? At least this is what we've seen in our membership. It's like a lot of folks start by just giving money. Like they're still sort of like, you know, money is ultimately less scarce for those folks than time is. And so they say, we'll write a check and follow along, you know, and that's what we can commit to so far. So getting your feet wet with a community of folks who's learning together. And that could be, you know, there are YIMBY groups all over the country because housing is a problem all over the country. There's certainly climate groups all over the country. I think that the key is like, is it a learning environment? And so in the same way that, you know, it's like there's, there's you know, startups will do crappy content creation, like that's just very clickbaity and trying to get you to, to give, give you their email so they can put you on the endless drip campaign. Or there's folks who did like real category creation and tried to just educate a market about how, you know, HubSpot with CRM or something. It's like, they were just trying to give you a lot of great ways to think about problem solving in the CRM space and they built trust with you. And then, you know, as a result, you ended up probably buying their product, but it wasn't a big deal if you didn't. Like for us, it's the same thing. It's like, it's not a big, you know, people don't need to join our organization, but you should as a citizen and probably most of the folks listening to this podcast are like top. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, 10, 20% citizen, I mean, not, not citizens, but like in terms of socioeconomic status, right? So you, you have a lot of human capital, you have a lot of financial capital or reason about full amount of financial capital, and you should just be engaged in a civic project. Like, unless you look around and think America is doing amazing, you should be engaged in a civic project. And ideally one where you learn, not just, you know, not just a check, but you also are learning. Maybe you're not working actively, but you're learning through that experience to understand how public policy works. That sets you up for then if there's a life transition, if you sell a company, if you leave a company for whatever reason, then you can look at spending even more of your time on this kind of work. Do you see people replicating the model of effective government, your club, in other states? You know, it's just starting, like, I've now had a handful of conversations with folks from other states who are thinking about similar issues. 
sometimes, you know, based on just one wedge issue like housing or sometimes a little bit broader. And I've actually just, I mean, in the last handful of days started to be in conversation with a couple of national groups who are looking to support state-based organizing around these types of themes. So I think it's very much in the zeitgeist. You know, I think more civic engagement, more, you know, energy, I think with all the disappointment from the federal climate bill, I think a lot of energy will go more state and locally. So, you know, I think that we're at the early stages of a renaissance. I'm like very optimistic that over the next 10 or 20 years, you know, we're going to, we meaning the collective, (laughs) the collective we are going to make a ton of progress towards sort of getting America back on track in terms of like a functional government that's delivering outcomes for folks and making their lives better. I just, you know, I think it's a natural cycle of history. It's like, it's great. It's been great to free ride on a, on a very healthy, you know, or on a functioning system again, especially for folks sort of, you know, more towards the knowledge economy and, and sort of, you know, who have benefited over the last 20, 30 years, people have been doing great. And you could kind of just ignore the like, the rot that was happening in the system and like why spend your precious time on it when it seems to be working fine. Now it's gotten to a level where I think everyone can see like there are some real problems here. And so, yeah, I think I have a feeling we're on the upswing in terms of civic engagement and, and starting to work on these problems, which are certainly tractable. They just take work. Well, that's an optimistic vision of the <laughs> possibilities here. Could we wrap up with your call to action for people? How could they learn more? get involved? What specifically should they do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think on our, I think modern power is, is a good place to start. So this is a Substack we started a few months ago. So it's called modernpower.substack.com. And we're writing about sort of how politics and public policy works, sort of pitched towards a startup tech audience we'll use analogies and stuff from the startup tech world. And it's also just sort of a place where we're learning in public. I think of it, you know, we analogize it to the early days of Paul Graham essays or Elad Gill or Naval or some of those, Fred Wilson, some of those early blogs to sort of just lay out and open up the space of how venture worked, how startups worked. That's what we're trying to do here for politics. So I think that'd be a good place to start. And then, yeah, I mean, wherever you are, whether, I mean, if you're in California, yeah, reach out and, and, and join our thing. But yeah, just look for a look for thoughtful approaches to changing civic problems that you care about. There's a lot of great organizations and thinking out there. And I think it's a very rewarding feeling to start to be engaged on this stuff. And yeah, I'd encourage you to just find, find, find a wedge in, find a way to get involved, even just write a small check and, you know, and, and make sure that you're learning from that money, not just not just sending it out into the wild. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Miles. I hope we didn't get too too wonky or political startup people out there. You you have amazing skill sets that can be deployed and it's great. You can deploy them in startups. That's one useful way to do it, but you can also apply your, your skill sets to public problem solving. Thank you. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.